Chapter 15 Part 2 Continued Of More Love to Thee The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter More Love to Thee The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice Chapter 15, Part 2, Continued Of her last Bible reading, the following brief account is prepared from the recollections kindly furnished me by several of the ladies who were present. Her last Bible reading There was something very impressive in Mrs. Prentice's Bible readings. She seemed not unlike her gifted father in the power she possessed of captivating those who heard her. Her manner was perfectly natural, quiet, and even shy. It evidently cost her considerable effort to speak in the presence of so many listeners. She rarely looked round, or even looked up, but a sort of magnetic influence attracted every eye to her, and held all our hearts in breathless attention. Her style was entirely conversational, her sentences were short, clear as crystal, full of happy turns, and always fresh and to the point. The tones of her voice were peculiar. I scarcely know how to describe them. They had such a fine, subtle, womanly quality, were touched, especially at this last reading, with such tenderness and depth of feeling. I only know that, as we heard them, it was almost as if we were listening to the voice of an angel. And they are, I am sure, echoing still in all our memories. The first glance at her as she entered the room a little before three o'clock on the 8th of August showed that she was not well. Her eyes were unusually bright, but the marks of recent or approaching illness were stamped upon her countenance. It was lighted up indeed with even unwanted animation and spiritual beauty, but it had also a pale and wearied look. The reading was usually opened with a silent prayer and closed with two or three short oral prayers. The subject this afternoon was the last verse of the fifteenth chapter of the Gospel according to John. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Witnessing for Christ, this was her theme. She began by giving a variety of scripture references illustrative of the nature and different forms of Christian witness-bearing. It was her custom always to unfold the topic of the reading and to verify her own views of it by copious and carefully prepared citations from the Word of God. A Bible reading, as she conducted it, was not merely a study of a text or passage of scripture by itself, but study of it in its vital relations to the whole teaching of the Bible on the subject in hand. In the present instance, her references were all written out and were so numerous and so skilfully arranged that they must have cost her no little labour. Feeling apparently too feeble to read them herself, she turned to her daughter, who sat by her mother's side, and requested her to do it. After the references had been given and the passages read, she went on to express her own thoughts on the subject. And, surely, had she been fully conscious that this was the last opportunity she would ever have of thus bearing witness for Christ, 
her words could not have been more happily chosen. Would that they could be recalled just as they issued from her own lips. But it is not possible so to recall them. One might as well try to reproduce the sunset scene on the evening of her burial. For even if the exact words could be repeated, who could bring back again her tender, loving accents, or that strange earnestness and unction from the Holy One with which they were uttered? Or who could bring back again the awestruck, responsive emotions that thrilled our hearts? The simplest outline of this farewell talk is all that is now practicable. Had we known what was coming, our memories would, no doubt, have been rendered thereby sevenfold more retentive, and little that fell from her lips would have been lost. Her first point was the great variety of ways in which we can bear witness for Christ. We can do it in private as well as in public, and it is in the private spheres and familiar daily intercourse of life that most of us are called to give this testimony, and to give it by manifesting in this intercourse and in these retired spheres the spirit of our Master. What an opportunity does the family, for example, afford for constant and most effective witness-bearing? How a mother may honour Christ in what she says to her children about him, and especially by the manner in which she fulfils her everyday home duties. How a wife may thus testify of Christ to her worldly, unconverted husband. And here she spoke of one form of public testimony, which everybody might and ought to give. I cannot, she said, see all the faces in this room, but there may be those here who have never confessed Christ before men by uniting with his visible church. Let me tell any such who may be present that they are grieving their Saviour by refusing to give him this testimony of their love and devotion. In referring to this subject, she remarked that young persons, after having united with the church, sometimes felt greatly disheartened and thought themselves the worst Christians in the world. But this was often a very wrong feeling. Their sense of their own weakness and unworthiness might come from the Holy Comforter, and we should be very careful how we treat him. His influence is a very tender, sacred thing, and like the sensitive plant, recoils at the touch of a rude hand. I have wanted, she said, to speak cheerful, comforting words to you today. It was the particular desire of my husband this morning that I should do so. He thought that young Christians, especially, needed much encouragement on this point. It was a great thing to lead them to feel that they could please their master and be witnesses for him in quiet, simple ways, and that, too, every day of their lives. Our Lord, to be sure, does not really need our services. He could quite easily dispense with them. But he lets us work for him, somewhat as a mother lets her little child do things for her, not because she needs the child's help, but because she loves to see the child trying to please her. And yet, Mrs. Prentice asked one of the ladies, does there not come a time when the child is really of service to the mother? I thank you for the suggestion she replied. I left my remark incomplete. Yes, it is true such a time does come, and so, in a certain sense, it may be said, perhaps, that God needs the services of his children. But how easily he can dispense with the best and most useful of them, 
one may seem to have a great task to perform in the service of the master, but in the midst of it he is taken away, and, while he is missed, the work of God goes right on. God does not see such a difference as we do, she said, between what we call great and small services rendered to him. A cup of cold water given in Christ's name, if that is all one can give, is just as acceptable as the richest offering. And so is a teaspoonful, if one has no more to give. Christ loves to be loved, and the smallest testimony of real love is most pleasing to him. And love shown to one of his suffering disciples he regards as love to himself. So a little child, just carrying a flower to some poor invalid, may thus do Christ honour and become more endeared to him. There is no one, old or young, who has not the power of blessing other souls. We all have far more influence, both for good and evil, than we dream of. In the course of her talk, she alluded to the trials of life and the shortness of them at the longest. We are all passing away, one after another. Our intimate friends will mourn for us when we are gone, but the world will move on just the same, and we should not allow ourselves to be troubled lest when our time comes we may be afraid to die. Dying grace is not usually given until it is needed. Death to the disciple of Jesus is only stepping from one room to another and far better room of our Father's house. And how little all the sorrows of the way will seem to us when we get to our home above. I suppose St. Paul, amidst the bliss of heaven, fairly laughs at the thought of what he suffered for Christ in this brief moment of time. And as she said this, she gently waved her hand in the way of emphasis. No one of us who saw it will soon forget that little gesture. In one part of her remarks, she cautioned us against hasty and harsh judgments. We should cover with our charity the faults and imperfections of those about us, as nature hides with her mossy covering the unsightly stone. She referred to the case of children. A child often has a sweet disposition until five or six years of age, and then becomes very irritable and cross, causing the parents much anxiety, and perhaps much impatience. And yet it may not be the child's fault at all, but only the effect of ill health, too much study and confinement, or pure mismanagement. A large portion of the disobedience and wrong temper of children comes from improper food or loss of sleep, or something of that sort. And it is not cross-fretful children alone that need to be judged tenderly. A consumptive friend of hers, rendered nervous and weak by long sickness, upon being asked one morning as usual about her health, replied, Don't ask me again. I feel as if I could throw this chair at you. Now, I do not think, said Mrs. Prentice, that this speech was a sin in the sight of God. He saw in it nothing but the poor invalid's irritable nerves. God judges us according to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and we ought, as far as possible, to judge each other in the same way. And when we ourselves are the ones really at fault, we ought to confess it. I never shall forget how humiliated I felt when my mother once came to me and asked my forgiveness, but I loved her ten times as much for it. Prayer was another point touched upon in this last Bible reading. 
she almost always had something fresh and striking to say about prayer. It was one of her favourite topics. I recall two or three of her remarks at this time. Always move the lips in prayer. It helps to keep one's thoughts from wandering. A mother can pray with a sick child on her lap more acceptably than to leave it alone in order to go and pray by herself. Accustom yourself to turn all your wants, cares and trials into prayer. If anything troubled or annoyed my mother, she went straight to the spare room, no matter how cold the weather, and we children knew it was to pray. I shall never forget its influence over me. When a question as to duty comes up, I think we can soon settle it in this way. Am I living near to Christ? Am I seeking his guidance? Am I renouncing self in what I undertake to do for him? If we can say yes to these questions, we may safely go into any path where duty lies. We never dread to hear people pray who pray truly and in the spirit. They may be unlearned, they may be intellectually weak, but if they pray habitually in the closet, they will edify out of it. Such is a poor, meagre account of this last precious Bible reading. Possibly some of the things here recorded belong to previous readings, though Mrs. Prentice occasionally repeated remarks on points to which she attached special importance. Some good, she said, will come of these meetings, I feel sure. It is impossible that you should take so much pains, and some of you put yourselves to so much inconvenience, in order to come here and study together God's word, and his blessing not follow? The blessing has already followed, good measure, pressed down and running over, and it will continue to follow in days to come, especially the blessings of this last meeting, when, in a strain so sweet and tender, as though she had a new glimpse of heaven and the heart of God, our beloved and now sainted teacher urged us to bear witness for Christ, and showed us so plainly how to do it. At the close of the meeting she looked very pale and seemed much exhausted. "'You are ill, Mrs. Prentice,' said one of the ladies, distressed by her appearance. "'Yes,' she said, "'I am.' Still, it seemed a great pleasure to her to have met us once more. Nor can I help thinking that, even if she herself had no presentiment of what was coming, she was yet led of the Spirit, the Blessed Comforter, to hold this last Bible reading. It was itself just such a testimony for Christ as fitly crowned her consecrated and beautiful life. Upon my return from the station with Dr. Vincent, she met us on the porch, bade him welcome to Dorset, told him with what extraordinary care the girls had made ready his room, and appeared in excellent spirits all the rest of the day. While at tea, she expressed to Dr. V, I regret that Dr. Poor could not have made his visit at the same time, although to be sure they might, if together, have brought the house down upon our heads by the explosions of their mirth. She then related some amusing anecdotes of a queer, crotchety old domestic of ours in New Bedford a third of a century ago, and of her delight when Dr. Poor, then settled at Fairhaven, opposite New Bedford, got married because now it was to be hoped he would stay at home with his wife and not be coming over all the time and drinking up our tea. 
On my asking her about the Bible reading, she said she got through with it very well, expressed surprise at the large attendance, and spoke of the deep interest manifested. After tea, she sat with us in the parlour for some time, and then, kissing M goodnight, omitted Hattie and the boys, a most unusual thing, remarking, as she left for her chamber, "'Well, I'm not going to kiss all this roomful.'" Friday, August the 9th. A severe thunderstorm had set in early last night, and continued at short intervals throughout the day. She was very anxious that Dr. Vincent should enjoy his visit, and on his account was disturbed by the weather. Otherwise, a thunderstorm seemed to exhilarate her, as is said to have been the case with her father. She spent most of Friday in her den, finishing a little picture, and chatting from time to time with the girls who were busy in the adjoining room. Dr. Vincent and I sat a part of the forenoon on the piazza under her window, and whiled away the time, he in telling, and I in listening, to any number of amusing stories. She called the attention of M and H to our unclerical behaviour. Just hear those doctors of divinity giggling like two schoolgirls. But nobody enjoyed more an amusing story, or told one with more zest, than she did herself. I forget whether it was on Friday, or an earlier day, that she showed me a remarkable letter she had received, during my absence at the seaside, from London. It was written by a young wife and mother, nearly related to two of the most honoured families of England, and sought her counsel in reference to certain questions of duty that had grown out of special domestic trials. Stepping heavenward, the writer said, had formed an era in her religious life. She had read it through from fifty to sixty times. It had its place by the side of her Bible, and no words could express the good it had done her, or the comfort she had derived from its pages. The home at Greylock had also been of great help to her as a wife and mother, and she could not but hope that one whose books had been such a blessing to her might be able to render her still greater and more direct aid by personal counsel. The letter, which was beautifully written, and was full of the most grateful feelings, appealed very strongly to her sympathy. But it was never answered. Saturday, August the 10th. She had a tolerable night, but on coming down to breakfast said, in reply to Dr. Vincent's question, how she felt, I feel like bursting out crying. After prayers, however, when the plans for the day were arranged, and a drive to Hagerbrook, a picturesque mountain glen and waterfall, was made the order of the forenoon, she proposed to go with us. I had almost feared to suggest it, and yet was greatly relieved to find that she felt able to take the ride. It was decided, therefore, that she, Hattie Kay, Dr. Vincent and I should form the party. As we drove toward the village, I noticed that Dr. Wyman was just stopping at our next neighbour's. Dr. Hemingway, our old physician, had removed to St. Paul's, and Dr. W. had taken his place. I was rejoiced to see him, both on her account and my own. I had not been well myself during the week, and although I had repeatedly proposed to call in the doctor for her, she stoutly refused. So, after getting a prescription for myself, I said, And now, doctor, I want you to do something for my wife, relating to him her ill turn on Monday. Certainly, 
the doctor replied. She needs some arsenicum, which he gave her, promising to call and see us on the next Monday. As we rode on, Dr. Vincent suggested, laughingly, what a strange story might be based on Dr. W.'s prescription. I might report, for example, that I myself saw the author of Stepping Heavenward eating arsenic. She joined heartily in the laugh, and during all the rest of the drive, conversed with great animation. She related several anecdotes of her early life, talked with admiration of the writings and genius of Mrs. Stowe, one of whose New England stories she had just been reading, and seemed exactly like herself. Upon reaching the brook in East Rupert, and starting with Dr. Vincent for the Glen, I said to her, Now, don't walk off out of sight where I can't see you when we come back. Oh, yes, I shall, she replied in her pleasant way. After we were left alone that Saturday morning, Hattie writes, Mrs. Prentice gathered quite a bunch of the wild ageratum and then dug up the roots of three wild clematis vines with her scissors. She then called my attention to the thimbleberry bushes along the edge of the brook, admiring the foliage of the plant and expressing the determination to have one or more in her garden next year. On coming down from the glen, I found her sitting on the ground near the brook, Taking her by the hand, for she seemed very tired, I helped her to rise and walked back with her toward the carriage. Just before reaching the road, she saw some clusters of clematis on the side of the brook, which at her desire I gathered. It was the last service of the kind ever performed for her, and I am so thankful that no hands but mine were privileged to perform it. During the drive home, she said almost nothing and was, evidently, feeling very much wearied. We returned by the West Road, and on passing in at our gate, I observed that Dr. Wyman's gig was still in front of Miss Kent's. Why, Lizzie, Dr. Wyman is still here, said I. Then I would like to see him now rather than wait till Monday, she said, to my surprise. I went immediately and asked him to call. It was, I think, between eleven and twelve o'clock. He came very soon, and she received him in the parlour. I noticed at once that she was extremely nervous and agitated while explaining to him her symptoms, and not being able to recall some point, she remarked that her mind had been much confused all the week. Just then she rose hastily, excused herself, and went up to her room. She is very ill, said the doctor, turning to me, and must go to bed instantly. While he was preparing her medicines, Judge M and family from New York, who was sojourning at Manchester, called, but on learning of her illness, soon left. Later in the day, I told her who had called, and how much Mrs. M. and the young ladies admired her flowers, especially the portulacas. She seemed pleased, and said to me, You had better, then, prepare two little boxes of portulacas, and send them over to Mrs. M. to keep in her windows, while she stays at the Equinox house. A few days after her death, I did so, and received a touching note of thanks from Mrs. M. As the doctor directed, she at once took to her bed. For an hour or two, her prostration was extreme, and she nearly fainted. Her head shook, and her condition verged on a collapse. I rubbed her hands vigorously, gave her a restorative, and gradually her strength returned. In speaking of the attack, she said the sense of weakness was so terrible that she would gladly have died on the spot. 
In the course of the afternoon, however, she was so much easier that the girls read to her again out of Boswell's Johnson, and she seemed to listen with all the old interest. It pleased her greatly to have them read to her, and she loved to talk with them about the books read, and especially to discuss the characters depicted in any of them. Toward evening, George brought in some trout, which he had caught for her out of our brook. Her appetite was exceedingly poor, but she was very fond of trout, and G often caught a little mess for her supper. Our brook never seemed so dear to me, nor did its rippling music ever sound so sweet as when I did the same thing before he came home from Princeton and took the privilege out of my hands. When he brought in the trout, Ellen went to his mother's chamber and asked if they should not be kept for breakfast. No, they are very nice, and you had better have them for supper. Shan't I save some for your breakfast? asked Ellen, knowing how fond she was of them. No, said she, the doctor says I must take nothing but beef tea. And you feel better, Miss Prentice? continued Ellen. Oh, I feel better, Ellen, but I am very weak. I shall be all right in a few days. After tea, she insisted on sending for Mrs. Sarah C. Mitchell of Philadelphia, whom she had been unable to see on the previous Monday. Mrs. M. was the last person out of the family with whom she conversed, excepting the doctors and nurse. Sunday, August the 11th. She slept better than I feared, but awoke very feeble, taking no nourishment except a little beef tea. She lay quiet a part of the time, but the quiet intervals grew shorter and were followed by most distressing attacks. M. and I sat by her bed, but could do nothing to relieve her. My fears had now become thoroughly aroused, and I awaited the arrival of the doctor with the most intense anxiety. Hour after hour of the morning, however, passed slowly away, and he did not come. At length a messenger brought word from the West Road, where he had been called at midnight, that an urgent telegram had summoned him to Arlington, and that he should not be able to reach Dorset before one or two o'clock p.m., the anguish of the suspense during the next three or four hours was something dreadful. When the bell rang for church, she desired that M should go, as Dr. Vincent was to preach, and it would give a little relief from the strain that was upon her. Soon after M had left, during an interval of comparative ease, she fixed her eyes upon me with a most tender, loving expression, and in a sort of beseeching tone said, Darling, don't you think you could ask the Lord to let me go? Perceiving, no doubt, how the question affected me, she went on to give some reasons for wishing to go. She spoke very slowly, in the most natural, simple way, and yet with an indescribable earnestness of look and voice, as if aware that she was uttering her dying words. I cannot recall all that she said, but its substance, and some of the exact expressions, are indelibly impressed upon my memory. For my and the children's sake, she had been willing and even desired to live, and for several years had made extraordinary efforts to keep up, although much of the time the burden of ill health, as I well knew, had been well-nigh insupportable. So far as this world was concerned, few persons in it had such reasons for wishing to live, or so much to render life attractive but the feeling in her heart had become overpowering that no earthly happiness, no interest, no distraction could any longer satisfy her 
or give her content away from Christ, and she longed to be with him where he is. During the past three months especially, she had passed through very unusual exercises of mind with reference to this subject, and it seemed to her as if she had now reached a point beyond which she could not go. She evidently had in view the dreadful sleeplessness to which she had been so in bondage for a quarter of a century, whose grasp had become more and more relentless, and the effects of which upon her nervous system were such as words can hardly describe. No human being but myself had any conception of her suffering, both physical and mental, from this cause. To return to her conversation, in answer to a question which I put to her later about her view of heaven and of the relation of the saints in glory to their old friends there and here, she replied, in substance, that to her view, heaven is being with Christ, and to be with Christ is heaven. By this she did not mean, I am sure, to imply any doubt respecting the immortality of Christian love and friendship, or that our individual human affections will survive the grave. Often had she delighted herself in the thought of meeting her sainted father and mother in heaven, of meeting their Eddie and Bessie and other dear ones who had gone before. And certain I am, too, she believed that those who are gone before retain their peculiar interest in those who are toiling after, only her mind was so absorbed in the thought of the presence and beatific vision of Christ in his glory that, for the moment, it was lost to everything else. She then said that, in the event of her death, she would like to be buried in Dorset, where we could easily visit her grave. But I do not expect to go now, she added. This meant, as I interpret it, that she regarded so speedy a departure to be with Christ as something too good to be true. Repeatedly, when very ill, she had thought herself on the verge of heaven and had been called back to earth, and she feared it would be so now. Hardly had this never-to-be-forgotten conversation come to a close when her feet entered the swelling of Jordan and found no rest until they walked the sweet fields beyond. Her disease, gastroenteritis, returned with great violence. The medical appliances seemed to have little or no effect, and the paroxysms of pain were excruciating. A chill also began to creep over her. About two o'clock, to my inexpressible relief, the doctor arrived. Her first thought was that he should rest a little, and that some ice cream should be brought to him. In answer to his inquiries, she told him that she had never known agony such as she had endured that forenoon, and he immediately applied remedies adapted to the case. But they afforded only temporary relief. A terrible restlessness seized upon her, and would not let go its hold. Towards evening she got into the sea chair, and remained in it near the open window until morning. On leaving for the night, Dr. Wyman entrusted her to the care of Dr. Slocum, who had recently come to Dorset. Dr. S. remained with her all night, and was indefatigable in trying to alleviate her sufferings. "'How kind he is!' she said to me once when he had left the room. M. sat up with me till towards morning, and assisted in giving the medicines. Her distress could only be assuaged by inhaling chloroform every few minutes, and by the constant use of ice. As from time to time, going down for the ice, 
I stepped out onto the piazza, the scene that met my eye was in strange contrast to the one I had just left. Within the sick chamber it was a night dark with suffering and anxiety. As the hours passed slowly away, my heart almost died in the shadow of the coming event. All was gloom and agitation except the sweet patience of the sufferer. But the beauty and stillness of the night out of doors was something marvellous. The light of the great harvest moon was like the light of the sun. It flooded hills and valley with its splendour. The outlines of each mountain, of every tree, and of all visible objects, far or near, were as distinct as those of the stars, or of the moon itself. As I stood and gazed upon the infinite beauty of the scene, I felt, as never in my life before, how helpless is nature in the presence of a great trouble. The beauty of the night was fully matched by that of the morning. As the first rays of the sun crossed the mountains and shone down upon the valley, I said to myself, even while my heart was racked with anxious foreboding, how wonderful, how wonderful. Monday, August the 12th. For some hours she seemed much more comfortable and, in the course of the morning, of her own accord, was removed from the chair to the bed. On Monday morning, writes Dr. Wyman, I found her with temperature nearly normal, pulse less than a hundred, and other symptoms improved. This gave us hope that the worst was past, but it was only the lull before the storm. She was for the most part quiet and took little notice of anything that was going on. During the forenoon, M tried to get some rest in the sea chair by the window, while Hattie kept her place by the bed. Several times Lizzie looked round the room as if in quest of someone. Hattie, perceiving this, and guessing what it meant, stepped aside. She was between the bed and the chair so as to intercept the view. When she fixed her eyes upon M, and rested as if she had found what she sought. Having been up most of the night, I also tried to get a little rest in another room, and later went out in search of a nurse, and engaged an excellent one. Mrs. C., who came early in the afternoon. Notwithstanding my deep anxiety, I was deceived by the more favourable symptoms, and did not allow myself, during the day, to think she would not recover. In the early evening I wrote to A., who was absent in Maine. I am sorry to say that your mother had a very trying day yesterday, and has been extremely weak and exhausted today. Nervous prostration appears to be the great trouble, she has rested quietly much of the time today, and the medicines seem to be doing their work, and in a couple of days, I trust, she may be greatly improved. You know how these ill turns upset her, and how quickly she often rallies from them. She is very anxious you should not shorten your visit on her account. Soon after this letter was written, the whole aspect of the case suddenly changed. The unfavourable symptoms had returned with renewed violence, Dr. W. asked her, during one of the paroxysms, about the pain. She answered that it was not a pain, it was a distress, an agony. But from first to last she never uttered a groan, not during the sharpest paroxysms of distress. She seemed to say to herself, in the words of two favourite German mottoes, which she had illumined and placed on the wall over her bed, Geduld mein Herz, Patience my heart. Stiller mein Will, still my will.
the patient and uncomplaining manner, writes Dr. Wyman, in which the most agonising pains which it has ever been my lot to witness were born, with no repining, no murmur, no fretfulness, but quiet, peaceful submission to endure and suffer, will not soon be forgotten. At eleven o'clock, when the doctor left, I sent the nurse away for a couple of hours' rest and took her place by the sick bed. Lizzie, who had already begun to feel the effects of the morphine, lay motionless and breathed somewhat heavily, but not alarmingly so. Tuesday, August the 13th. Shortly after one o'clock I called the nurse and, directing her to summon me at once in the event of any change, retired to the green room for a little rest. The girls had been persuaded before the doctor left to throw themselves on their bed. Everything was quiet until about three o'clock, when Hattie knocked at my door with a message from the nurse. I hurried down and saw at the first glance as I entered the room that a great change had taken place. It seemed as if I heard the crack of doom and that the world was of a sudden going to pieces. I went to G's room, woke him, told him what I feared, and desired him to go for Dr. Slocum as quickly as possible. He was dressed in an instant, as it were, and gone. In the meantime, I woke H, and told him his mother, I feared, was dying. When Dr. Slocum arrived, he felt her pulse, looked at her, and listened to her breathing for a minute or two, and then, turning slowly to me, said, It is death. This was not far from four o'clock. I asked if I had better send at once for Dr. Wyman. He can do nothing for her, was the reply, but you had better send. I requested G to call Albert and tell him to go for Dr. W as fast as possible. I'll saddle Prince and go myself, G said, and in a few minutes he was riding rapidly towards Factory Point. I then knocked at Dr. Poor's door. Upon opening it and being told what was coming, he was so completely stunned that he could with difficulty utter a word. He had arrived the previous afternoon on the same train by which Dr. Vincent left. I had tried by telegraph to prevent his coming, but a kind providence so ordered it that my message reached Burlington, where he had been on a visit, just after he had started for Dorset. The night, like that of Sunday, was as day for brightness. Never shall I forget its wondrous beauty, although it seemed only a mockery of my distress. Soon after the first rays of the sun appeared, Dr. Wyman came, but only to repeat, It is death. I asked him how long she might be a-dying. Perhaps several hours, but she may drop away at any moment. We all gathered about her bed and watched the ebbing tide of life. The girls were already kneeling together on the left side. They never changed their posture for more than four hours. They wept, but made no noise. The boys stood at the foot of the bed, deeply moved, but calm and self-possessed. The strain was fearful, and yet it was relieved by blessed thoughts and consolations. Although the chamber of death, it was the chamber of peace, and a light not of earth shone down upon us all. He who was seen walking, unhurt, in the midst of the fire, and whose form was like the Son of God, seemed to overshadow us with his presence. As the end drew near, we all knelt together, and my old friend Dr. Poor, 
commended the departing spirit to God, and invoked for us, who were about to be so heavily bereaved, the solace and support of the blessed Comforter. The breathing had now grown slower and less convulsive, and at length became gentle, almost like that of one asleep. The distressed look changed into a look of sweet repose. The eyes shut, the lips closed, and the whole scene recalled her own lines. Oh, where are words to tell the joy unpriced of the rich heart that breasting waves no more drifts thus to shore, laden with peace and tending unto Christ? About half past seven it became evident that the mortal struggle was on the point of ending. For several minutes we could scarcely tell whether she still lived or not, and at twenty minutes before eight she drew one long breath and all was over. Again we knelt together, and in our behalf Dr. Poor gave thanks to Almighty God for the blessed saint now at rest in him, and for all she had been to us and all she had done for him through the grace of Christ her Saviour. The following account of the burial was written by the Reverend Dr. Vincent and appeared in the New York Evangelist. Dorset, Vermont August the 16th, 1878. This lovely valley has been, for the past few days, a valley of the shadow. It is not the least significant tribute to one so widely known as Mrs. Prentice that her death has affected with such real sorrow and with such a deep sense of loss this little rural community which has been her home during a large part of the last ten years. It would have been hard to find among all who gathered at the funeral services on Wednesday a face which did not bear the marks of true sorrow and of tender sympathy, while from the groups of sunburned farmers gathered round the door or walking towards the cemetery were often heard the words, A Great Loss. End of chapter 15, part 2, continued.